Thanks for listening to Reimagining the Internet from the Institute for Digital Public Infrastructure at UMass Amherst. We're hosting an ongoing discussion with researchers, activists, academics, techies, and journalists about what's wrong with the Internet and how we might fix it. I'm your host, Ethan Zuckerman. I am thrilled today to have my friend Evan Henshaw Plath, uh, also known as Rabble. Uh, he is an activist, uh, a technology-driven organizer, a software developer, uh, a member of the founding Twitter team, uh, and now uh, the executive director and high pooba of Planetary.Social. Did I, did I miss anything in there, Evan? No, that's about right, yeah. Okay. So um, we're asking everybody the same question in this series, and it's really pretty simple. Uh, it's a twofer. What is wrong with social media as we look at it now in August 2020? And uh, what should we do to fix it? And in your case, of course, you're, you're very actively involved in fixing it with planetary.social. But let's start with this question of, of what's wrong with social media right now, and maybe take us back a little bit to your role with Twitter and sort of how we got here. Social media, I mean, first of all, like, we use it all the time. It's transformed the world. It's transformed how we've connected. It's transformed culture and politics. And so it's easy to say everything is wrong with it, but actually there's a lot that's super powerful and good about it. Right. And so um, I, I think that we are much better off in the world having it than when we didn't have it, even though what we've built is pretty flawed. So it's important to understand sort of a bit of the history of, of where Twitter came from and how it constructed. So the, originally the company uh, was funded by Evan Williams, who had been very involved with early blogs and Blogspot and Blogger. And uh, we were trying to build a, a democratized radio by creating podcasting. Mm. And so we built this podcasting application and we weren't very good at competing with Apple. Uh, even Apple 15 years ago, was a massive company with a lot of resources. And so Apple crushed us and we said, oh, well, we, we should build something different because we, we didn't win in building this podcasting thing. And uh, a couple of us in the company had been working with Tad Hirsch, who was at the time a doctoral student at the Media Lab. And it's uh, now uh, teaching over at Northeastern. Yeah. And so he had created this text message based social network for protests where you could keep small groups of people or large groups of people really easily up to date. And so what my friend Blaine and I did was we basically went in and sort of re-architected the technology so that those text messages could be delivered. And we used that during the election cycle in 2004, both for protests and get out the vote how do we get from this sort of tool about, hey, come to the protest, to Twitter's sort of paradigm of sharing media, sharing snark, sort of all the, the many layers of things that Twitter is and isn't today, you know, and in some ways is, is um, a social network that, that punches disproportionately above its weight, given the presence of, of the US president and all these journalists on it. So what happened was we said, the, the text mod thing that Tad had built uh, lacked a bit of that, the way in which blogs worked. And so we originally called the, we called Twitter microblogging uh, at the time. 
And the idea was to make it so that you didn't have to have two-way relationships so that I could talk out to the world and then uh, I didn't have to listen to everybody who was hearing me. You know, it's not a two-way friendship. So you could do broadcast and then you could build an audience around who you wanted to listen to and who they wanted to listen to. And this is 180 from Facebook, which required reciprocal friendships from day one. And, and initially at this point, Facebook had no news feed at all. Like Facebook was closed within uh, each individual university campus. You had to have email addresses and you were all, it was, it was not a published to the world. When some of the Twitter executives now tell the story, they talk about it a little bit, almost like uh, a workflow tool, almost something like what we would think of Slack as. Is, is that part of the heritage as well? No, not really. I mean, it was very much text messaging, activism, and blogging. Like, the, very much has its roots in early blogging culture. Um, Got it. And because of that, there was an open API, and there was RSS feeds, and you could, and all sorts of people built all sorts of clients. And the way Twitter's innovation worked is it it happened all at the edges. So the users created everything. They created inline images and short links and retweets and the at, actual at username and hashtags. And so uh, Twitter's innovation in social, like it's not like someone designed Twitter as it exists right. today. The users of Twitter created what it became and Twitter, the company, just supported, adopted, cultivated this garden where innovation could happen. How long did you stay with Twitter, the company, and, and, and what led you to, to break away? So I stayed there for the, the first two years of the company, and, uh, but it was, a, at the time, very open company. So I still had root access on all the servers for several years after I left. <clears throat> and uh, people who weren't employees would contribute code, and people who were former employees would write code, and it was never very defined, like, like there were people getting paid, but there were people working on it not getting paid as well. What, so it was just a very fluid boundary at that point. Exactly. And what, what happened over time was Twitter got big enough that some point people are like, hey, we should have a business model. Um, and the business model that was adopted was an advertising model, which has never been particularly successful for Twitter. Right. Yep. And um, it still isn't particularly successful, but in order to make that advertising model work, Twitter had to kind of get rid of some of its openness. Okay. And sort of, and basically sort of enclose what was a commons run by a company, but functionally a commons because it was collectively governed and it was a collective resource and collectively created. And by enclosing it, they were able to make a business that was sustainable and we still have a day and has a huge impact on the world for being a relatively small business. What is it that's wrong with Twitter now, with social media more broadly, that sort of brought you back to this initial question of how do you build an open social media ecosystem? So a few things. One, Twitter over its evolution made a bunch of decisions about this closing things down. They closed down third-party applications. They've closed down the project to do structured data that aren't texts in your tweets. Uh, 
They closed down the federated thing. So Twitter originally worked like Mastodon in terms mm -hmm. of being federated. And uh, a bunch of us who had been working on it kept thinking, what, what if that other path had been taken? And so I kept looking at that model and saying, well, may maybe we should reopen that box and, and do something there. Can we make the technology work? And then I came across Eleanor Orstrom's uh, work on the economy of the commons. And I realized that what we've created in social media ecosystems is a kind of public. Mm. It's, it's a public that's governed in different ways. So in some parts of the world, it's very heavily governed by the state. So in, in China, the state is very interventionist about who can say what and what can be said. And uh, the state defines the regulation that the social media companies then implement. Right. In the United States, it's very laissez-faire in which the corporations decide all of the rules of the space and the state does very little. And so the American system is a lot like a shopping mall. Uh, a shopping mall feels like a public space. It feels like you have everybody together. But if you try and hold a protest in a shopping mall, they will very quickly say uh, that this is private property and the First Amendment doesn't apply in the way you think it applies. Right. It's a privately owned public space. And as such, it has some of the affordances that a public space has, but fewer protections than one might hope it would have. How do you do something different in, in constructing a, a de novo social network? What, what, is, what is planetary and, and what is planetary trying to do that's so different from what else is out there right now? So part of it is planetary is saying that the space we should have should function like a commons function mm -hmm. like a, a space which is collectively governed on a certain rules with enforcement that provides economic and social value to the participants of it, but which is not owned or controlled by a single entity. And mm -hmm. so in order to do that, you need to have a vision of it which says this isn't a flat public sphere where you're trying to put everybody together in the same conversation. And this is part of the value of Twitter is it's a a single public space where I can reply to anyone else, I can have hashtags and everything else. So you collect it, create this collective conversation, but you also create this sort of collapsing of context. We need to design something that is both governed as a commons mm -hmm. and creates the structures by which communities can run themselves, define their norms and enact sanctions as a collective entity without going back to a corporation that needs to kind of define the rules. On a system like Twitter, there's really no transparency about what content is being blocked. There's not a ton of transparency about how the terms of service that you probably haven't read but have agreed to are being enforced. Um, everything about the governance is opaque. And what you might actually want are spaces that frankly, um, help us understand how to be better democratic citizens, actually help us figure out how we govern the spaces that we are choosing to take part of. So how does planetary support this notion of multiple spaces and this notion of governance of those spaces? We 
exist within a network of people we know, within social circles. And we normally have heard the conversations within those social circles. And so when you open up Planetary or any of the other compatible Scuttlebutt apps, uh, Scuttlebutt's the underlying protocol, and then what you see is just the subset of the world around you. It's as if you went into a forest at night and you had a really bright light. And you know that the forest might extend for miles, but the part of the forest you see is the few hundred feet around you. Mm -hmm. And if you move and set up a light somewhere else, then you'll see another part of the forest and get engaged okay. in the part of the conversation. And so by doing that, we scope our social interactions around communities and you're much less likely to have that sort of random person or the conflating of different communities. So basically we're sort of focused in on a subset of the graph. And yeah. so we might hear the conversations that are proximate to us. We're not necessarily hearing conversations that are all the way on the other side of the social graph. Um, what, what happens when people in that neighborhood sort of argue or, or disagree about what the rules um, should be for what's acceptable in a conversation? So there, there's a couple things that happen. Uh, one thing we had on the network is not in our application, but with compatible applications, a bunch of Norwegian neo-Nazis uh, created some pubs. These are servers that relay messages and they translated some of the open source applications into Norwegian and they set up their sort of corner. And the rest of us are like, well, we don't really like Norwegian neo-Nazis. Um, and so we found the points at which their network bridged and we set up blocks so the messages don't relay back and forth. And so okay. what happened is we created this segmented network and you can either be part of that one or part of the larger network. And there's social punishment for someone who tries to set up that relay. So if you're like, oh no, I really wanna get the, the, the neo-Nazis into the larger conversation, you can do that. But then there's an awareness of who's doing the blocks and we have this thing called the TrustNet protocol, which is an actual way of calculating your, how much you respect and how much you sort of delegate authority to the people around you and who you delegate it to, to make those decisions about how far you want to extend your network in different directions. So we should stop here and just sort of talk a little bit about some of the problems that happen when you create either a distributed network as planetary is or a federated network as mastodon is yep. these are both ways of trying to take control away from a central figure and in many ways this is much closer to um sort of the internet perhaps pre-2000 where it just wasn't all that hard for anyone to sort of connect a server to the net. And there was a general sense of, um, you're really only responsible to whoever is providing you the connection. Um, when I teach this, I often talk about the Kremvax hoax. And this was this idea in uh, the, the late 80s, early 90s, uh, that the Kremlin had attached a Vax mini computer to the net through Finland. And the reason it worked as an April Fool's joke was that it was totally plausible. 
Uh, it was perfectly reasonable for Finland to give a connection to the Kremlin and to put Kremvax on there, and and people responded to it with, "Okay, sounds good. Let's see how it see how it goes." We see the same thing happen often now within distributed and federated networks, and it's simply a product of releasing open source software and protocols that can be connected to. Um, within Mastodon, there's been a split over uh, Lollicon. So basically, um, hand-drawn erotic imagery of children, um, which has a different uh, role in Japanese society than it does in US society. It may be more acceptable. Um, and what's happened is much what you're saying. There are a lot of Mastodon operators who basically said, sorry, we are simply not going to federate will be part of the same network. We're using some of the same protocol, but we're not going to route messages to or from you because we don't want that content there. So Planetary has the same ability to do this, even though it's a little different from a federated network. How does Planetary differ from Mastodon and other federated networks? So federated networks, your account and your identity and the structure of who you're connected to exists on a server that someone is running. And sometimes that's an individual person, sometimes that's a company, sometimes it's a collective of people. Mm -hmm. And those are the people who have the moderation tasks. And so you don't have direct connections coming into your laptop or your phone, they come into the server and then the server manages your relationships. Okay. With Planetary and uh, our Scuttlebutt protocol, the way it works is there's no federated servers. There's these relay servers but they don't have this, they don't have the control the way they do in Mastodon. And so um, you have a set of relationships of people that you have contacts with. And those contacts have a numeric value between one and negative one. Okay. And zero contact means I am neither blocking them nor following them nor relaying their content on to my friends. And a one means, please relay this on to everybody I have. And right. so that fractional number is not just do I want to see this person's contacts, but my judgment about their relation, what I think they should be reflected out to the broader world. Okay. So it's a reputation system, but it's also a control over how information passes within the system. Is that all transparent to the user? Can I look at this and say, Evan, I'm pretty persuaded by this. I, I'm gonna bump you up from a 0.6 to a 0.8? No, no, we hide it. Um, it. Maybe we need to expose it. And if you are a developer, you can go and connect to people and see what numbers they are and create visualizations of it. And the, the TrustNet software we do uh, goes and uses those numbers to sort of handle auto blocking and a bunch of other okay. things about like what, who we should expose you to, who we should suggest you follow, that kind of stuff. Um, and it might extrapolate from my behavior. If I amplify you a number of times, it probably increments your score up or something along those lines. Yeah, and, and this is an idea that's not unique to planetary or scuttlebutt. Uh, one of the things I've been doing is involved in Twitter's new decentralized project called Blue Sky, which is basically an attempt to create 
and a decentralized version, not of the scoped commons-based model that Planetary is building, but of that public sphere. Mm -hmm. And a critical aspect of that is saying the algorithm about what content you see shouldn't be singly held by a corporation. Mm -hmm. Rather, uh, that feed algorithm needs to be something that you could plug in different versions of. Um, I do want to ask you maybe sort of two questions that, that come up for me uh, out of that. One is just about a, a peculiarity of um, Secure Scuttlebutt and therefore about Planetary, which is that this network is permanent. Nothing is deleted. Why is that and, and how is that going to change social interactions? So I think it's a mistake. I think... Uh, um, and uh, what we did with building it is we set it so that you can run it either uh, permanent or in a mode where it's, uh, you can opportunistically delete stuff, but you don't have to. So like if I send you an email, mm-hmm. you don't have to keep it forever, Right. but I don't know whether or not you keep it. And you don't have any control over whether I keep it forever. This is simply a property of distributed systems. You've put something out in the world. It has your cryptographic signature on it. As long as I retain a copy of it with your legitimate cryptographic signature on it, that content cannot be deleted. Yeah. And so what what we did was we took the cannot be deleted and continued to sign it and made it so it can be deleted, but you never know whether or not the people you're requesting delete it do delete it. Got it. And um, so it's, it's you know, we call it a soft delete. You know, it's, it's asking politely for people to delete stuff. When you sign up for Planetary Now, you're running uh, an iOS app. The sign up is really weird. It, it asks you just what you want to be called uh, and a question about what year you were born in, presumably to have some bar for, for minors. And then I assume that what's happened behind the scenes is that I now have a private key stored on my phone that I'm going to be using to sign messages uh, right now on Planetary. But at some point in the future, I could open up, you know, cosmic.social. And if it speaks the Planetary protocol, I could build different spaces with different affordances or norms, but it would still be open to people who have the, the, the Planetary um a key pair on their phone. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, that already exists. So you could go to feedless.social and create an account and it will store your key pair in your browser like local storage. Okay. And you can then redeem an invite or follow someone who's on planetary.social on their phone and see each other's posts back and forth. Okay. And if you're using feedless and you decide that you would rather use planetary, you can take your keys and you can move them over to Planetary, and all of your followers and all of your content move with you. Talk to me about how Planetary um, grows and gains users. Obviously, it's in an early beta right now. It's it's clearly changing a lot. But you're going to be moving into a world where, where Twitter is also trying to build something highly decentralized. Um, how do you see Planetary attracting users? Are you going after individuals? Are you going after communities? What, what are the use cases for the people you're trying to bring into the project? Really, we're, we're going after communities of people because people are social animals and building social software for individuals doesn't make a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
we're looking at communities of people who have particular needs in terms of not being satisfied with the existing system. So there's uh, communities of people who are being are violating the rules on existing social media platforms who we don't want. Just yep. like the NAB folks went over to running on the activity pub Mastodon protocols. Uh, we're not seeking out those people and we don't want them using our application, but we expect they will, they, they do use the protocol. Uh, then there's uh, the class of people who everybody who got kicked off of Tumblr, who were basically queer and sex positive youth who were doing things that Verizon didn't want to see. Right. And so, there's a whole world of people who are not only fans paid pornography, but are also not things that fit sort of corporate America's ideas of morality. So yes to furries, no to Nazis. Exactly. And then uh, people who are using Mastodon, but want to build a different class of social applications. Uh, people who are using Signal and they want privacy. We support uh, scalable private groups. So your messages could be public, they could be directly individual to individual, encrypted or in sort of a scalable private group of encrypted messages. And so people who want a signal style encryption, but not for chat, for social media. Right. Um, and then the last group we're looking at is uh, media companies that want to control their relationship to their audience. Mm, okay. Uh, better publishers to... Uh, media outlets with hundreds of employees, they're publishing on Apple, Facebook, Google's platforms, and those companies are sometimes giving them a lot of money and then changing the algorithm and then pulling away and then deleting accounts and then charging them 50% of their revenue. And so they want a kind of sovereign control over their relationship to their their audience over social media. And right now, they can build their own app, or they can run their website with a paywall, or they can put their content out on these platforms where they don't control the relationship. So much to think about in here. Really exciting to see it taking off. So many of the same problems and questions that we're facing over at our project. We start from aggregation kind of as our first step Yep. precisely for the reason that you're talking about. One of the things I really have to get my head around is sort of how we aggregate um, into uh, planetary, uh, given that you're using a, a very different approach to URLs and sort of the ability to share posts. But that's a, a technical conversation we have to have at some point. In the meantime, though, this notion of um, true decentralization, identity that resides on the phone or on the device uh, and this sort of vision of many different spaces with many different rule sets is is so aligned with what we're trying to do. Um, I hope we're going to have a chance to, to keep talking about this uh, as we both go forward with these projects. Reimagining the Internet is hosted by me, Ethan Zuckerman, and produced by Mike Sugarman, who also composed our theme song. Visit publicinfrastructure.org for more information about the launch of our research center at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst in spring 2021. And please subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast.